This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com. Two quick things before today's show. First of all, if you haven't yet seen it, be sure to go on YouTube and watch John Oliver's takedown of Science Reporting, which he did for HBO series Last Week Tonight. You can find it by going to YouTube and just doing a search for John Oliver or Last Week Tonight. I'll also include a link to the video in the show notes for this episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 155. I've done a bunch of videos about this sort of thing, about how a study gets misreported and then tweeted and Facebooked, and it ends up misleading tons of people, but I've never done anything as comprehensive and as funny as John Oliver's takedown. Everybody in the world should see this. It would, it would make a lot of people happy. It would save a lot of lives, too. And the second thing is, in case I haven't mentioned it before, I run a wellness consulting practice. And basically, it consists of two main things, health education and support to implement changes. The education part is I share unbiased information so you can make good decisions about your health care. And the support part is I work with you to overcome ingrained habits, develop new skills, and basically act like a healthy person acts. Until now, the support part was out of reach of most folks' budgets. But thanks to some clever advisors, I've developed a model that provides support at a much lower cost. And it involves a combination of personal attention and group classes. And here's the weird thing. It may end up being even more effective than my personal attention and coaching alone. We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Anyway, if you'd like to chat with me about this, just drop me a line at hj at plantyourself.com. And now, today's episode. When Jamie Gannon was 27, he was an aspiring actor living out the dream in Hollywood, California. Reading for films, TV, commercials. I actually looked him up on Internet Movie Database, and he was actually uh, Lev on an episode of The Gilmore Girls in 2004. And he was in a bunch of movies with names like Sasquatch Mountain, Final Stab, Blood of His Own, Shrieker, Roadkill, and uh, Bring Me the Head of Lance Hendrickson. So he was working his day job. He was working out to keep his leading man physique. He was taking voice lessons, acting classes. And he was living a healthy, active life. And that's when it all fell apart, thanks to a golf ball-sized malignant tumor at the base of his brain. This was a tumor that even after its removal and long courses of chemo and other intensive medical therapies left Jamie with about a 10 to 15% chance of survival. Fast forward 17 years, Jamie is cancer-free. He's a health coach who guides other cancer survivors to get their lives back following diagnosis and often successful treatment. And our conversation has inspired me in lots of ways, including checking out and starting doing this ancient Chinese health practice called Qigong, as well as to be a more present, grateful person. Have I ever mentioned how much I love doing this podcast? Anyway, without further ado, Jamie Gannon, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, what you do. Well, uh, I'm a certified personal coach, and my wheelhouse is really helping people who are recovering after cancer treatment. But I work with uh, different people, of, people with different chronic diseases as well. One of my clients has Lyme disease. But really what I do mostly is help people who've gone through a cancer experience, 
gone through standard cancer treatment, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and then help them to not only recover from the side effects, but get back to even better, as well or better as they were pre-diagnosis. Mm. So um, how did you get into this? I'm a cancer survivor. All right, let's 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 tell that story because that's that gets people get people get the that gets people's attention. Yeah, so I was I was 27 years old. I was um, a young up and coming actor in Hollywood, living in Hollywood, California, and I was super super healthy, like super healthy. And I started to get this like twinge, and I thought because my day job was working at a hotel, I thought I was carrying bags, and I'd tweak something, and it got worse, and and. Uh, I just got married. My wife is like, you have to see a doctor. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm super healthy. I'm not, what? So I went to a, a network chiropractor because I'd had a really good experience the year before. And the guy's like, oh, your body's processing emotions. And he would like adjust me. And I, was, I felt a little better, but I'd still be on the couch for like six hours. And then it got worse. And uh, I'd end up sleeping sometimes like on my knees and my forehead. I called it the tripod. Wait, and finally, my, my in-laws came for... Thanksgiving 2000, and uh, I was in bed all day long. I finally got out of bed to eat dinner. I promptly went and threw it up and got back in bed. And the next morning, my mother-in-law marched into the room and said, I've talked to all the parents, and we're taking you to Cedars. So we went to Cedars, and they did some tests. And the guy's like, yeah, you know, I think, um, I think your brain's putting some pressure on your spinal fluid. It sounds worse than it is, but, you know, we should get you admitted, get your MRI. Next thing I know... I'm on the ninth floor, and this, this is where it starts to get weird. So this neurosurgeon strides into my room with a file under his arm and, like, an attending following him, and it was like a Monty Python skit. He strides in, and he goes, you have a large tumor in the back of your head. And I laughed right in his face. Oh. It was just so random. And I started, like, sputtering, no, but I'm so healthy. And he's like, well, would you like to see your MRI? And I said, yes, yes, I would. So we walked down the hall, and I'm making wise cracks the whole way, but like every third step was like a drunk step at this point. And then we see, we get to the MRI suite and he's like, here's your films. And I point to the spot and I'm like, that? That's nothing. He goes, no, 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 that this. And what he pointed to was so big, I thought it was part of my brain. <laughs> so all the snappy dialogue dried up and I was like, what are we gonna do? We're going to cut it out. When? Well, I have to check my schedule. What do you mean you gotta check your schedule? He's like, no, no, I have to make sure there's an OR. So the next morning, I had eight and a half hours of brain surgery, and uh, I, I woke up, and I saw my, my wife and my parents, and my parents, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my parents still live in the same house, and like my parents don't even go out to dinner. So the fact that they were in L.A., I opened my eyes, and I was like, wow, this must be serious. And uh, I made it through a very restless night, and the next morning, around dawn, I remember the sun was coming through the blinds, my neurosurgeon was standing in the room, and uh, he said, good news, we got it all out. And I said, was it, was it malignant? He said, yes. And I started to tear up, and he's like, why are you crying? I said, I don't want to die. He's like, oh, you're not going to die, you're going to be fine. All right, so, like, so what, what kind of tumor was it? It was an adult medulloblastoma. So brain tumors are pretty rare tumors, and my tumor was a rare brain tumor. And we had a family friend send us an article a month later that was published in the San Francisco Chronicle about people who 
had gotten a certain polio vaccine in the Philadelphia area between certain dates and were developing these really rare brain tumors. And there was, you know, some lawsuits. And I was like, well, that's weird. That's, that's me. Huh. Contacted this law firm and I had to fill out a ton of paperwork for them to have access to my tumor. Cedar sinai did not want to grant it because it was such a rare tumor. And they had to do some really advanced science to culture it. And after like, I don't know, 30, 100 days, they found SV40, simian virus 40. And there's this whole, there's a great book called The Virus and the Vaccine, which explains like when we were kids, they were still using monkey kidney cells to culture the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And most of the pharmaceutical companies told Salk, like, yeah, we followed your protocol. We can't really kill the polio, though. And I think I'm just one of the unlucky people where it actually progressed to a tumor. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so we, there's so much I want to unpack. I, got, <laughs> I, I kind of want to put a pin in the vaccine issue. Because yeah. you you have you have just spoken to something that like I don't talk about like I've done I've done a, a huge literature search, and I think that for most people vaccines are a bad idea, and I don't talk about it because I don't want to be dismissed as you know a, a tin a tinfoil hat guy, but 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 you just spoke about something that happened with just giving facts with incredible credibility. Oh yeah. Um, so I want to I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. We can, sure. but but I'm I'm just curious. Like, so you're you're this young, healthy guy in Hollywood. Like, what what was your? <laughs> I mean, you know, it may not be relevant to the story, but like everyone loves a movie star. So like, what what was your career trajectory gonna be in your mind while you know while you were out there? Um, when I was sick, I had already booked. I was in the union. Yeah, I'd no. already booked. Um, Film, television, theater, commercials, voiceovers, all professional. My coach, who I'd been studying with, had already trained an Oscar winner. He told me that I had what it took. Um, but Hollywood, just like any industry, but Hollywood more so, your capability is 40 or even at this stage, probably 30% of the battle. And, you know, who you know and who likes you is much more important. <clears throat> I was never very good at that that side of it, <laughs> so I don't know where it could have went. So what was at, at that point? Um, you know, the other thing that I hear about your story is this this incredible denial that went on for for months and months. Who you know had? I'm always curious when when people have this sort of you know life changing event that that most of us in society would think of as extremely negative. Like, boy, let let that not happen to me. Like, who they think they would have been without it. It's interesting you say that, because the book I'm writing is called You've Got a Golden Ticket, Leveraging Cancer to Achieve Your Happiest, healthy, Healthiest, Most Fulfilled Life. And it took me a long time to get there, because, like you said, I was, I mean, this was, this was like hitting a wall at 70 miles an hour. My dreams were just uh, a mess on the side of the road. And I, I had, I was very, very lucky. I believe I was blessed. The tumor normally, the guy told me that normally it's like taking gum off of the bottom of a shoe. But mine came out like, bloop, it was the size of a golf ball. It was completely contained. They had very little scraping to do. But I still, because I was young and healthy and because of what the protocols were, especially in 2001, 
They gave me six weeks of high-dose radiation to the head and spine and 18 months of chemotherapy. So even though I found a, an incredibly powerful Qigong Grandmaster and I would get medical Qigong treatments every week, which really, really helped me, I still had tons and tons of side effects. And what made me become a coach was I was amazed that, you know, being sick was not fun and, and it, it was tough, but you've I had tons of support. I was very lucky. My family, my friends, my hometown raised $30,000 at like a beef and beer for me. People were calling me, writing me letters. It was really wonderful. I had art, art class. I had therapy. You name it. But then once it's all over, your final oncology appointment, you basically get like a pat on the back and uh, said, you know, make sure you set up your six-month return. And that's it. So I had all these side effects plaguing me, but the world kind of expects you to jump back in. You know, your, your bank doesn't care, your student loans don't care, your, your mortgage doesn't care. And we were very lucky that even though they told me that, you know, I might never, we might never be able to get pregnant, first time at bat, of course, right? <laughs> so now we can't raise our kid in an apartment in Hollywood, we gotta buy a house. And I gotta get a real job to help pay for that. But I'm like torn apart internally. So I remember getting my son out of the bath, my infant son, and I put the towel in my teeth so that I could get him with both hands. And I, I heard this like creaking and I realized that I was biting down so hard on the towel that it almost made my teeth hurt. And it was all of that anger and frustration and fear and what have you that I was, you know, kind of pushing down all day long. And I realized I, I couldn't have that around my kid. And so it was like, well, either you're unhappy, miserable, and you're a bad father, or you figure out how to fix this. So my best friend was a vegan for many years, and he'd always been trying to get me off it. But, you know, I grew up in Philly. Cheesesteaks, hoagies, pizza. And the chemotherapy kind of wrecked my stomach. So I had a lot of bad side effects with eating, and, uh, and my family would joke because I stunk like, like gas that was worse than anything you've ever smelled. So as I started to eliminate animal products and replace them with plant-based diet, everything started to go away and the problems in the bathroom. And I didn't have a fear of having a bowel movement anymore. And I had more energy. And then I started to exercise and eventually I started to think differently. And, and it, you know, it was very meandering and it probably took about 10 years total. But once I figured it out, I was like, you know, I really, um, I really should help other people do this because there's this is the missing piece of cancer care in America. This is one of the talks that I give, that there's tons and tons of help for treatment and even diagnosis somewhat, but there's not that much once you're done. Some of the really forward, like Memorial Sloan Kettering or Cedar sinai they offer free Qigong, they offer free yoga, free nutrition classes, which is great, you know, if you live on the Upper East Side. But if you just give me a packet of information, like Livestrong thinks you should have a, a healthy living plan, you could, here's my analogy, you could give me every DIY video on fixing your own car, I still couldn't fix my own car. <laughs> so that's why I thought people need a coach, like you need someone who's already gone through it to take you by the hand and say, okay, let's build a lifestyle for you so that you can figure out how to come out of this and start to appreciate 
the things that it did to you rather than be angry. So, so just to frame this story a little bit, this is, this is not a story of you like be beating cancer against the odds of the medical world. This isn't like they said, they they told you like, go, go home and there's nothing we can do for you. And then you did Qigong and had a vegan diet and, or is it? No, no. They, they told my wife that I had a 10% chance of survival. And wait, 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 wait. This is, is this like the same time that the, uh, the, the, the neurosurgeon came in and said, you'll be fine. This is probably right after the brain surgery. So, so, uh, so you were getting, you were getting a message of optimism as opposed to clinical odds. They, they told the poor woman, because I handle stuff like that pretty well. She's, she's a warrior. And they told her like, your husband probably has 10, 15% chance of survival, but you can't tell him that because he's in denial and that's very good for his healing. So she had to oh, like sit with that all her own. Oh my God. That's, that's like. Malpractice how, almost, right? How, I mean, whatever she says is a betrayal. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. But I, you know, we can, you can look at it two different ways. Maybe it was hardcore denial, but I, I swear to you, I always, always knew. I didn't believe I knew I would be okay. And uh, a friend of mine who, from acting class, she, you know, Facebooked with me recently. She goes, I remember you saying to me when I asked you what's going to happen. And you said, it's going to suck, but I'm going to be okay. And that's exactly what happened. Huh. So why did they think if, if, if they cut out the whole tumor and it came out clean, why did they think you had an 85 to 90% chance of dying from this? Uh, well, it, it was big. It was, it was 4.5 centimeters. It was the size of a golf ball. And it's the kind of tumor that likes to come back two, three, four, five times. And with the standard protocols, obviously, every time you get another round of chemotherapy, you're, you're wrecking your uh, immune system even more. You're looking at chances of secondary cancer. I, I've, I had 5,500 centigrades of, of ionizing radiation. That right there is like, it's like 2,000 chest x-rays. So I, I, they, they shaved this stripe up the back of my head so they could operate, but the rest of my hair had kind of gotten shaggy, so I had to get a haircut. And uh, the girl who was cutting my hair told my wife, she said, you know, my dad was sent home from the hospital to die. They knew he had a tumor. They couldn't find it. And he went to this, this Qigong master, this doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and the man told him through an interpreter, he pointed to a spot in my dad's stomach, and he said, that's where your tumor is. I'm sorry, it's too far along for me to help you. And my dad went back to the hospital and told him, and they, they looked or uh, biopsied or whatever, and they found it. And she said her dad died. So I had studied martial arts and I'd read about Qigong. So, and this guy happened to be in West Hollywood, or excuse me, in West LA. So I went to his office, Master Zhou Tingzhui, and I would get medical Qigong treatments from him, like medical Qigong massage. And this guy's probably, I would say, one of the most powerful Qigong masters in the world right now. So after, I'd, I'd crawl in like two, two or three days after chemo when it's really hitting hard. I would come dragging in and he'd be like, ah, Jimmy, Jimmy, and I'd lay down on the massage table and he'd start working on me and this and that. This guy can burn you without touching you. So after 40 minutes, I'd get up and I'd walk out feeling not too bad. 
pretty good. He made my hair grow. While I was getting chemotherapy, my hair grew back. But I would come to the chemo ward and people would look at me like, what? <laughs> and so uh, after I finished my treatment, I was like, I have to study with this guy. This guy's unreal. So I studied his elementary and his intermediate Qigong. And I kind of have been practicing that for the last 10 years. And then I wanted to... I wanted to, to share it with my clients, but I'm not a certified Qigong teacher. And so I, I have a friend who lives in Hong Kong, and I Skyped him, and he called Master Zhou, and he acted as our interpreter. And I explained that I've been you know, very diligent about practicing and uh, that I would like to share it with my clients. I would never say that I was a Qigong master or that I was cert certified to teach his style. But, you know, would that be okay? And he basically said, oh, yeah, yeah, I give you my blessing, but I can't help you with insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's something that uh, I think is, is hugely important to not just cancer survivors, most, more than anything cancer survivors, but Americans in general. And if there's a way for me to get the word out to people about a plant-based diet and Qigong, that it's not this weirdo hippy-dippy thing, that it's not just for Asians, that it's not difficult... I think that would be like a, a life well spent. Okay. So, so let's, for, the, for the purpose, of, for the benefit of people who are just listening, who, uh, who, who, who don't know what you look like, you don't have dreads or you're not, you're not wearing yeah. robes. You're, you're, not, no. you're not in lotus position. You're not levitating. <laughs> um, no. I'm a red-blooded American boy from Philly who grew up on the flyers and cheesesteaks and hoagies. Okay. So... So I want to talk more about Qigong because I, I know almost nothing about it. So, you know, very, very often I, I, I play ignorant in interviews, you know, both to, uh, you know, to represent my listeners. But here I actually am completely ignorant. So it's, so it's very easy to play. But, but so the idea, so you have this 10 to 15 percent chance of living according to science. And the idea is, I guess, from my perspective, so, so this cancer happened. It was a very rare occurrence. There might have been some trigger in this uh, monkey gland um, extract you received in your, in your polio vaccine. But whatever caused it is still going on, right? It's, it's, so that's why, like, you know, if you have weeds in your garden, you can pull them out. But if your garden's the way it was, the, you know, Weeds are more weeds are going to come. the 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 roots are still underground. It's going to grow back. So you had to change something. You couldn't just cutting it out wasn't going to solve the problem because the the environment was was carcinogenic in some way. Well, also, I mean, you know, cancer cells. You you only know about a tumor when you have enough cancer cells that reach sort of a critical mass, and so they know that even if they cut it out and do this or that, and they can't have any perceptible through MRI or, or, or PCR or whatever they use, they know it's there. And if you, for whatever reasons, it's going to come back. And I believe that Master Joe's treatments are the reasons it did not come back, mm -hmm. as well as dietary lifestyle changes I made. Uh, so so we'll, get to, we'll get to diet and lifestyle and people who are familiar with my podcast you know, they, they can fast forward through, through almost, right. you know, half of any interview because I always talk about um, the importance of a, of a healthy, whole food, fresh, plant-based diet. But let's, you know, tell us about Qigong. What, what is it? Where does it come from? What's the principles upon which, which it's based? Does it hurt? What does it look like? All that. 
Qigong means uh, roughly translated energy work or, or benefits and uh, gifts achieved through persistence and practice. It's basically um, it's a holistic form of self-massage that incorporates breathing, postures, meditation, and visualization. It's, it's definitely documented at least 2,000 years old. Some people would say 3,000, that it dates back to Chinese shamanic practices. And uh, it's only in, since like 1950 that it's been used to treat specific illnesses. So by, by standing in certain postures, breathing in certain ways, and becoming aware of the qi, the qi is the energy, like we say the force. Well, qi is like the force. And just because we don't have a metric yet in science to measure it doesn't mean it's not there. Just like until a few months ago, we really couldn't capture gravity or prove gravity exists. We all knew it was there. If you fall down, you get hurt. Qi is the same way. And we all have access to it. And the Chinese system of, of medicine is that, you know, we have these, these pathways, these channels that run through our body, these meridians, and they carry the qi. And it's circulating like, like a cooling, heating or cooling system. And if it gets blocked, the qi becomes stagnant. You can get sick through either disease or um, contamination or what have you. And if it becomes you know, weak or diminished, because let's say, because you're a couch potato. So through these practices or through someone as, as trained and, and practiced as Master Zhou who can extend his qi, he's kind of like roto-rooter, <laughs> you start getting your qi flowing well again. And there's all these parallels between, it, it kind of becomes semantics, you know, the very poetic um, imagery of, of classical Chinese literature, medical literature, when you unpack it, there's, there's a parallel on the Western medical side, the allopathic side. And whether it be hormones and, and oxygen-rich blood or what have you. But just doing these practices has proven, like, documented beneficial effects. It's not just anecdotal. And even if it was, there's... Uh, the NIH did a study in 2007, and they thought there was, like... Uh, I think like 600 or, or 800,000 Qigong practitioners in America. And it's been growing by 18%. So now it's roughly probably like 3 million or more people. In China, their, their ministers of health anticipate or in, interpret that between 150 and 300 million people regularly practice Qigong. Mm. So if it's been around for 2,000 years, several hundred million people regularly practice it and and are very vocal about its effects, even if we didn't have any clinical proof, which we do, it would still be worth a good look, don't you think? Well, especially since, you know, like what are the negative side effects, right? Like, like do it on a railroad track, maybe it's dangerous, but right. you know. It's, it's very simple. I mean, people say, well, I tried Tai Chi, I didn't like it, it was too complex. Tai Chi and Qigong are very, very interwoven but Qigong is much simpler. You know, you don't have to learn a lot of movements. There's the, the subtlety that's involved in really getting Tai Chi on its higher levels is not nearly as difficult to achieve. It's, it's very much a standing position, learning to be aligned, to, to root and send your energy in, and to 
breathe with their whole body. It's it's actually the way we were kind of designed. So what one of the problems, you know, I said I know nothing about Qigong. It's 99% true. Like, I've, I've seen a couple of videos, and, like, I, I tried some stuff, and I did do a, uh, a semester of Tai Chi classes, and I was doing good until we turned, like, 90 degrees, and then I couldn't see the teacher anymore. <laughs> like, it really was, like, this brain workout, and... You know, but, yeah, but there's the Qigong scene. Yeah, it was it's it was easier, but yeah. part of the problem I had as a Westerner was like, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm I'm not getting you know like when I do martial arts, I get hit in the face or you know punch. I go oh okay now I I have feedback for this. It, it seemed like such a passive like how could this possibly make a difference? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, I totally get it because I grew up playing uh, football and lacrosse and, and working out really hard with weights. And, and I, I practiced Muay Thai and Jeet Kune Do and, and a little bit of Jiu Jitsu. It was all external. It was all hard, you know, bang, bang, bang. And when the other issue is it's not that difficult to be a certified teacher of Tai Chi in America or Qigong or what have you. So, you know, like I, I did a class through my local town, and it cost like 50 bucks for the for like a handful of lessons. She was a very nice woman, and many of the people were were older, and it was good that they were getting out and being exposed to this, but this was not Qigong. <laughs> this was not Tai Chi. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to be rude. But, you know, she was a certified teacher. And there's a guy uh, online, Sifu Richard Clear. He has a school in Maryville, Tennessee. And he's a very, very high-level Tai Chi, Qigong, uh, Bagua, I Ching, you name it. And he talks about how these arts are dying out because they were hidden for so long for whatever reasons. But, but now that it's coming out, it's very easy for anyone to just do it incorrectly and not even know they're doing it incorrectly. When you're doing it correctly, even though it seems like you're not doing anything, you feel it. You can feel the energy. You can feel your legs like, wow, it feels like I have like 500 pounds on my back. Your legs are really, really working because you're rooting into the ground and you're, you're aligned. And you feel, you can feel the energy. You really can feel it. Mm, this, is, this sounds like a real challenge for Western medicine. Because if, if you say, you know, like they want to say, well, let's do a treatment and let's do a placebo or let's do a control group or something. But you're saying like you have this lady doing a class and then you have your your master in in West L.A. and you have this guy in Tennessee and they're all like externally, they're all doing the same thing. But but really, they're not. Yeah, well, I guess the equivalent would be like, do you want your doctor's medical degree to be from the University of Manila or from Johns Hopkins? Uh huh. Well, but, but, but even so, like you said, and I want to get back to this, like, massage you were getting, because you're, you're describing, like, you know, Karate Kid type stuff, oh, yeah. which, which, you know, I saw that movie, I thought it was, like, all fiction. So you're saying, like, this, this guy could, like, what do you mean when you say he could burn you without touching you? He, he had, you can YouTube him, Master Zhou Tingzhui. He's Spe been on. Sp spell that for me. Z-H-O-U, Master Zhou. I think it's masterzhou.com is his website. Okay. And he has videos up. I call them his parlor tricks. <laughs> because when you, you know, he's like five feet tall. He's this little Chinese man in a tie and a lab coat, you know. Ah, can you come in? And he can take a paper towel in his hand and get it up to 200 degrees on a thermal camera. <laughs> and he can do 
things that we would think are miraculous. He can take a piece of red hot metal and bite a piece of it off and spit it onto a plate with no harm to his mouth. He can lick red hot metal. He can break uh, shards of glass into dust. He can stand on butcher paper and not break it. He can um, have a, a, a four by four drive up on him and back off and he stands up and he's fine. And it's all through the cultivation of decades of a very dedicated practice to chi. You know, it's nothing miraculous. It's nothing spiritual. There's no chimes or bells in, in his office. This is a guy who just, I mean, imagine if, you're, if your doctor was top of his class, went to Johns Hopkins, practiced, published, always stayed at the cutting edge for decades. Like that guy earned all that knowledge and that power. That's kind of what Master Zhou did. He started Kung Fu at seven. His uncle was a Taoist priest at the Wudong Monastery, which is like the birthplace of Taoism and the internal arts. And his uncle started teaching him Chinese medical technique and theory. And he eventually went to Wudong and basically did like his, his graduate and postgraduate work, essentially, you know, to give people an understanding. He worked with, you know, really, really high level masters who transmitted all their knowledge to him. And he ended up creating his own style, which is which is not that uncommon. There's actually dozens, if not hundreds, of Qigong styles. There's a lot of them that have, I mean, they all have certain things about them that are, are similar, but it's, it's sort of like, like the way my, my martial arts teacher explained to me once about all the different styles of C-Lot in, Southeast, in the Southeastern, excuse me, South Pacific. He said, you know, in college wrestling, everybody's wrestling by the same rules. It's all NCAA wrestling. But... Iowa has their style, Penn State has their style, everybody's got their own little style. And Qigong's kind of the same way. There's certain principles that everyone adheres to, but there's different applications and, and little tweaks to it. Uh -huh. So yeah, Master Joe, super, super high level. He, uh, he can sense, people would call it the aura, you know, if they want to be hippy-dippy. He can sense your energetic imprint. He can sense... There's there's different feelings for different diseases, good chi, bad chi, block chi. And to, to get to that point, to be able to just sense it, people who could probably learn that in a year. Now, to get to his level where he can stop cancer and fix, you know, uh, fertility issues, you're looking at 10, 20, 30 years. But that doesn't mean it's not completely useful for you, me, and everyone else. Like, just practicing on your own, like, I don't get colds anymore. I don't get sick anymore. And, and my day job, I go into K through six schools four or five days a week. Provided I don't eat from my daughter's plate, you know, because she's kind of typhoid Mary. She's in first grade. <laughs> it's like a Petri dish. Provided I don't do that, like, I don't get sick. And our energy levels, it's, it's something that everybody could use, and it's not difficult to do. In China, in their Western medicine hospitals, in their oncology departments, you would have your surgery, you'd have your oncology, and you'd get a Qigong prescription as well. And there's documented cases of people curing their own cancer through Qigong. The Harvard, Harvard School of Medicine endorses Qigong. There's a doctor at um, MD Anderson, who's Dr. Cohen, who's done uh, papers and research on Qigong. So it's starting to, it's really starting to take hold. And as people are getting sicker and sicker and more and more obese and cancer rates are going up, uh, they're starting to realize like, mm, what we're doing is really not working. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of different, there's over 200 kinds of cancer and probably more than 200 
or plus forms of chemotherapy, but when you aggregate them, they have like a 2.1% effect on five-year survival rates. Not so good. Mm. So what is the, the Western view of cancer? You know, the, the standard one is that it's, it's, it's a genetic anomaly. It's either you were born with the genes or they got turned on by uh, exposure to a toxin or radiation yeah. or something like they, they, you're like these genes have gone haywire in this bunch of cells and they're proliferating. What did you get a sense of what Master Zhao's um, what his geography of cancer was like what if, if he can cure it or, or help you cure it with energy? What did he think cancer was? Well, uh, Master Joe speaks about 20 words of English, and although my Mandarin is getting better, there's never any conversation, which actually was really uh, frustrating over the, you know, the 10 years when I moved back east, that I couldn't call him and ask him questions. I had to sort of learn things just by paying attention to the chi and following his directions. But there... Or what do you think it is, based, based on your 10 years of, of study? Like, if... You know, if it's genetic, then it's hard to see how energy work is going to, I mean, maybe it's epigenetic or maybe you're actually changing the genes. But my understanding of Chinese medicine is that they don't think in terms of like discrete geographies, like this is your liver, this is your spleen, this is your oh, heart. Actually the, the, the liver is huge. The liver is probably the most important organ in Chinese medicine. So the liver, the spleen, the lungs, like they are very, very important. And, and you're, you're storing, so you're you're building qi, you're cultivating qi, you're storing it in your lower dantian, and as you get better at it, you start to send it to the organs. Mm. And you're toning, you're internally toning and, and, and keeping the organs healthy. So Master Zhou would sense like where the qi was stagnant and it wasn't giving, you know, nourishing energy and qi. Like you can get qi through your parents' genetics, original jing they call it. You can get qi through the food you eat and the lifestyle choices you make and, and exercise, and you can get qi through cultivating it, through the actual practice of qigong. And if you, if you take care of these things, yeah, I mean, I would say it's a lot of epigenetics. It's, it's how your genes express based on what you're doing. So qi, like in yoga, they say, you, people understand yoga a lot better, and I practiced yoga pretty intensely for a couple of years. They say that the prana, the life energy, that the breath follows the prana, the prana doesn't follow the breath. And it's prana and chi are kind of interchangeable. Uh -huh. And the idea is that the blood and the breath follow the chi, not the other way around. So you learn to use your intention, your yi, to sort of look, they say look into the body, but like imagine putting your intention, your attention, three finger widths below your navel, that's your lower dantian. And, and that's, they say that's the elixir field. That's where we store qi, qi. And learning to keep it there while you're basically doing a standing meditation. Mm -hmm. And then as you move certain ways, you're kind of like increasing the qi and then you're storing it there. And then that qi gets spread to the body by, by doing these movements that have been fleshed out for 2,000 years. Wow. I'm... Uh... I'm doing bad, bad radio now because I'm just, <laughs> I'm not making sounds. I'm just feeling like that spot and, and just sort of feeling like waves of, of what you're talking about. And in a, <coughs> excuse me, in a very rudimentary fashion, but I'm. Uh, it's, it's actually very simple. And I, I truly believe it's the way the human being was 
depending on your spiritual view, designed or adapted or evolved. I think it's the way we're supposed to work. Which, you know, so leads me to, um, to wonder about, like animals don't practice Qigong, but, you know, a healthy animal will naturally move in certain ways. That, yeah. You know, when I, when I think about our society and how unnatural it is, what, what are some ways that you see that we uh, go against, like, you know, even though, like we're not actually doing Qigong, but wait, like just living, what are ways in which we deplete it or stagnate it? Um, I think uh, one of the biggest ones is the way we breathe. We don't do diaphragmatic breathing or whole body breathing. We breathe in our chest. And, and this is stuff I learned when I was a young actor. You know, uh, I, worked, I did a workshop with a woman who was a, like a world-class voice teacher. And she worked with big, 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 big people. And she said, you know, put your, put your fingers right, just barely touching your chest, and take a deep breath. And if your chest comes and touches your fingers, you're not breathing correctly. Mm. It should be your stomach expanding and your ribs expanding. It should all be going down to the diaphragm. But because we want the flat stomach, right? Yeah. And we're, we're trained consciously and, and unconsciously to keep that flat, keep that locked in. As well as, that's a way to keep our emotions in check. When I was learning to act, I remember uh, we were all trying to work on emotional stuff. And everybody wants to try and make themselves cry. Like, that means I'm a good actor. And, uh, <laughs> and my teacher said, and, and pardon me if you have to bleep this. He said, you cannot shit tears. <laughs> you can't just push him out. He said, if you look at physiologically what happens when you cry, your diaphragm drops, your floating ribs swing out, and everything opens and your throat opens. This is why babies can cry for hours and hours and hours and do no damage to their voice. Because it's just allowing the body to move the way it's supposed to move. So just by cutting off our breath, we're... It, we're cutting off a huge amount of, of energy and health, you know? Wow. I, yeah. So I, I imagine you could go back and look at everything you learned about acting and say, oh, this was all uh, Qigong. Oh, oh, that, believe me, that is not lost to me because, uh, you know, I was exposed to like Feldenkrais and Alexander Technique and all these, you know, movement techniques. And it's, it's all, it's all the same stuff. Like it's all about alignment and it's all about breath and like all of these just sort of core fundamental things about, oh, that's how a human being is designed to move and live. And here's what we're doing now. Wonder why we're sick. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Alexander Technique and Feldenkrais, because I, I studied both of those in my early 20s as I, I developed a back problem. And I really got hung up on the differences between the two. Like in my mind, those two were at war with one another. And I was trying to figure out which one was right. And yeah, it, it, no, I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. Because that's the other thing. Like, just like uh, in acting, there's, there's sort of a, there was a, a schism in the, the method school in America between Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, basically. They either were in a group theater, they came back from Russia, and she eventually said to him, that's not what Mr. Stanislavski taught us, and they went like that. Uh -huh. To the outside eye, they're just, that's method acting. But to somebody who knows it, they say, oh, no, those are diametrically opposed. It's kind of, I think, a similar thing with Alexander and 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 Feldenkrais, mm. and with uh, maybe paleo and vegan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So to so, the outside world, it's like, ah, oh, you're all a bunch of freaks. But you know, to those in the camps, they're like, no, 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 you did paleo's bad, and paleo says, no, you vegans are wrong, and everybody's kind of missing the bigger picture. <laughs> so, so that that must maybe my inelegant segue into talking about nutrition. So you're doing this this qigong with this incredible master who can, uh, you know, crush glass and and stand on butcher paper. What made you think that you needed to do anything more? I mean, this guy's doing freaking miracles on you. What 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 made you do diet as well? Um, because I, I, you know, I firmly believe in give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. And I had, I had probably, if I'm honest, some of my happiest moments at Penn State was when I was training in martial arts. I really, really enjoyed it, and I really missed it. And I wasn't able to financially and physically keep up with, with Jeet Kune Do anymore, but this was an internal art that was going to make me stronger as I got older and was a more subtle way of moving. And my, my, my gut kind of told me, like, that's the way we need to head. And I, I want to be like that. I, want, I don't want to feel bad. Because at 27, I got a very... I mean, at 27, you think you're bulletproof, right? <laughs> And I definitely thought that. And I was really, really healthy and I was eating well and I was doing yoga like three to five times a week. And I got a very, very clear picture of what it was like to be old and weak and sick. And I did not ever want to have that again. Mm. And so even though Master Zhou could fix a lot of my symptoms, there was immediate reactions. Like, you know, my mother was like, oh, because I got down to 138 pounds. And my mother's like, we have to fatten you up. And she was like cooking me pork chops and steak. And like, you know, I would get bloated. And, and the bathroom was like literally a bloody experience. And the smells, people were like, oh, people just, oh, it was horrible, horrible. So I knew that there was such an immediate reaction that, that it, no practice of Qigong was going to solve something like that. And I saw how healthy my friend was. And not just like, oh, you look good. Like he... He, he was shining with health, a shine that I had before I was diagnosed. I wanted that back. So I started to be willing to say, all right, I'll, I'll cut this out. And I cut out steak and I felt better. And I was like, oh, but how can I cut out chicken? Where am I going to get my protein? You know, everybody says that. Where am I going to get my protein? And every time I cut something out, chicken, fish, dairy, whatever it was, I'd feel better. And it was undeniable. And it wasn't just all in my head. There was verifiable symptoms that were not there anymore. And I wouldn't have mucus in the morning. And I wouldn't have to like clear out all my snot in the morning. And, and I had more energy and I wasn't as, as, as scattered. I had a really, really bad case of chemo brain. Tell, tell us, what, what does that look like for those of us? So chemo brain has been in the literature since like 97, but it really wasn't accepted as, as truly there by, I think, the ADA until like 2009 or something. And it's basically um, cognitive impairment due to late effects of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy kills neurons because, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't know about brain plasticity. We didn't. We thought you had a certain amount of brain cells, and when they die, they die, and that's it. And now we know that we grow new neurons. Well, chemotherapy kills those neurons. So there's a great TED Talk, Dr. Sandrine Thevet. She's, um, 
she's French, but she's in charge of a whole psychotherapy unit at uh, King's College in London. And she does a ton of work on chemotherapy and cancer and genetics and, and foods. But she talks in her, in her TED talk about how she had a friend, she had a colleague who was an oncologist, and he said, I don't understand. I have all these patients who've been declared clear, you know, no evidence of disease, and yet they get, they get depression. And she said, well, of course, because the chemotherapy's killed their neurons. And he was like, no, 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 we, we, they're adults. And she's like, no, adults actually produce neurons. So it's, it's all this confluence of information as we're, as we're getting so much more technology and we're getting so much more deeper into the body and seeing things that's kind of proving a lot of ancient stuff, which I understand can be a slippery slope. We don't want to say like, you know, the shaman's new, man. You always want to verify, but I think you have to look at every side of an argument. You have to look at all the information. Right. So if you, if you could shoot me that link, I'll include it in the show notes for today. Absolutely. For that TED talk. Um, was, did you feel like there was any conflict between a plant-based diet and like your, your embrace of Chinese medicine? Cause I know a lot of people who go to acupuncturists and like ch local Chinese clinics. And they're like, he told me, to, they told me to eat liver. They told me to, to start adding meat back or have bone broth and my, yeah, I hear, I hear a lot of that too. And there's, you know, as much as master Zhou is a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, he's really, his specialty is, is Qigong. So with the energy, it's, it's not, if you're doing the energy correctly, I don't think there's the necessity to be so specific about, you know, this food feeds this organ and this feeds that. Um, I don't, I'm a very, very sensitive instrument. I'll tell you that no matter what, whether it's a chemical or a drug or a food, I know right away, like sometimes uh, someone will buy something, like I'll go home to visit my parents, my mom will be like, oh, this doesn't have anything in it. And I'll eat it and I'll go, mm, yeah, it does. Huh. So I, I never felt a need to, to go to any kind of um, particular classical traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic lengths as far as what I ate. Like the more veggies and fruit I ate and the less meat and dairy I ate, the better I felt. And I knew that in, in my bones. So that's what I followed. Mm. And you, the way you just said, I'm a very sensitive instrument, I, look, I got a little chill because the way most people would interpret that is negative. Right, like everything, everything affects me. Everything right. bug bugs me, makes me sick. And and you're you the way you said it, the way I interpreted what you meant is, I have a really refined um, sense of what's what's good and bad, and and a yeah. really and a really, you know, refined early warning system. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's sort of the crux of my book. You know, it's really all silver linings. It's really all point of view. Do you want to see the good side of it, the upside of it? Do you want to see how it's made you better, or do you want to perceive how it's made you worse? And it will have a dramatic effect on your interpretation of reality. Mm -hmm. Do you find that um, when you talk to people who are who are going through what you went through, that they're ready, that most people are ready to embrace this silver lining piece, or are they sort of clinging to? the the you're nodding like I, you know where i'm going 
Yeah, I do. And I'm smiling because it's probably, not probably, it is the biggest, the biggest challenge. Um, human beings hate change. We hate it. It frightens us, even if it's something that's, that we're doing that's uncomfortable and damaging, we know it. And certain people would say, well, that's the ego. The ego wants to protect us and the ego only works from what it knows in the past. But getting people to a point where they're willing to, to change is probably the biggest wall, the biggest hurdle. And that's why I feel that cancer survivors are the most likely that you can leverage that cancer experience. It's like, look, cancer, you went through it. You didn't like it. Mm. You don't want it to come back. Here are some things that have been proven, quotes, to give you your best chance of that never happening again. These are lifestyle choices you can make. How you eat, how you think, how you balance your energy, how you connect to you know, your, your, your higher power, depending on your view. Like I'm a Christian, I, I identify as Christian, but I don't push that on any of my clients. And I always sort of just, I sort of just throw like, like, a, like a fly fisherman, I sort of just throw the spirituality thing out there every now and then. And when they <laughs> hook on it, then you know, we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll see where they want to go with it. Huh. But it ultimately becomes a large part of it. That's so cool because you mentioned, you know, sh shamans and shamanic uh, several times. And, you know, in, in traditional cultures, the shaman was the person who got really, really sick and recovered or who got struck by lightning or who almost died as a baby and who couldn't walk or was schizophrenic and was hearing voices like the, the shaman could heal other people by virtue of having gone through this basically a near death experience and been transformed by it. And it's almost like. What you know, if you believe in in spirit, it's like you know, spirit is going. Boy, these humans are really effed up. We gotta we gotta create a tribe of shamans, and it's like, hey, let's give them cancer, and yeah. and and let that be an invitation, so that they turn into people like you who can come back from the abyss and say, look, I'm a I'm a cheesesteak eating flyers fan, and you can relate to me and my story. And I gotta tell you, we have to wake up. Yeah. That's sort of what I've been grappling with. Like, how can I, because at first it was all about, you know, you want to shout from the rooftops, like, hey, guess what I found out? Like, <laughs> everything you're doing is wrong. It's all wrong. <laughs> and in, in my book, I talk about, like, the, the emotional content around what we eat. Because when you're telling someone meat is bad for you, I could show you a million studies on the carcinogenic, carcinogenic effects of especially, like, processed meat. What they're hearing is, that cheesesteak your mother gave you was bad. Mm. Your mom's meatballs, your bubby's brisket, bad, 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 bad. And it's the finger wagon. The ears just turn off and they don't hear it. Right. Your mother so, was bad, right? Grandma. Yep. Everyone who loved you was doing something wrong. They're bad. And unconsciously what we're hearing is, is an attack. And I think that's sort of the thing that hasn't been unpacked by the vegan proselytizers, the people who really put a bad name on vegan or plant-based who, you know, want to go out there and, and feel good about themselves and shame everyone instead of really trying to win hearts and minds. <laughs> I, I love that you say that because I think, you know, you, you, you can be, you know, you can be right or you can be effective. Yeah. Are you there to serve or are you there to, to serve your ego? <laughs> And that's when I started to, that's when I started to affect the change at first, when I was going to do this, it was very scary. How am I going to, you know, t pay for things and, and take care of my kids and da, 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 da. And I got to like tell everybody and I got to be an expert and I got to be an authority. 
And then as I saw, the problem was, no, how can I use the gifts I've been given? How can I make it funny? How can I make it relatable? How can I make it seem normal for people? How can I show them that it really is within their reality, that it's not this, this other thing, that it's just a, you know, just a shift, really? Mm. And it's, it's so interesting because, you know, you, you and I met through Glenn Livingston. Um, and Glenn's a, a longtime friend and colleague of mine from my old days in the internet marketing world. And when yeah. I, when I st- got seriously back into, into health education around 2012, I wanted to expunge all traces of my marketing background. <laughs> like I was embarrassed by it. I thought this is yeah. trivial. This is silly. And I've come to realize now that it's like one of my strongest contributions to to the marketplace and it sounds like you've maybe done the same thing with with acting like yeah like my i come from a family of actors on my father's side and he 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 broke the mold because his father told him there's no telling how far an actor can go if he has the brains to keep off the stage (laughs) (laughs) that's great and you know and i i see you and you know first of all we can hear like the trained voice the um you know, and, and I can see sort of the the credibility and the confidence, and and making it funny and and accessible and interesting. So t- tell us about your your mission now and your coaching and your and your work, because you know, I'm so I'm so attracted to the path that you put forward and and your own having walked it, and I just you know I feel like boy I'd love to work with you. So tell tell us what that would look like. Um, I mean, right now, the way I'm, because for a while, I tried, for about a year, I tried to figure out uh, internet marketing and, like, how to reach out to the cancer community and let people know, and, uh, and it was very tempting to feel like, wow, I just wasted a year of my life. Instead, I chose to see it as, like, okay, now I know the right way to go, because what I'm doing instead is... Um, creating a discussion group in my local library, giving local talks, getting word of mouth and, and talking to people who I know in my family and, and on Facebook friends. And as I said, just making it much more relatable and much less distant and finger wagging. Because when I work with someone, the fact that they come to me, that's a, that's a big one. That's a big, big indicator that they're at least willing to think about making big changes. And then it's about explaining to them in the least frightening way what has to get changed. And I try not to even phrase it that way. I try and instead of saying like, well, here's like what we're not going to do, I try and say, well, here's how we're going to move things in the future. And here's the effects it should have. And getting people to understand, um, especially with cancer, just how... I'll say it, how dangerous meat intake is of any kind. I mean, you, you interviewed Dr. Greger, the guy's like one of my heroes. Uh-huh. And where I base a lot of my, my research on that I cite. I mean, people say, well, I don't, I don't eat red meat much. I only eat chicken. But a chicken breast increases your chance of, of fast-growing cancers like leukemia. He said, he said something like a, a, a chicken, one chicken breast increases your chances by like 33% or something. Crazy. Yeah, chick, so, chicken is the craziest... <laughs> Food, I, I think it's in, in every respect, it's ten times worse than beef. Yeah, and the and the way it's raised, and the pathogens, and the like, uh, and yeah, just uh. So trying to 
spoon feed that to someone so that they don't get turned off. Mm-hmm. And and every time they go, what? Because we've been, not to be conspiratorial, but we've been, you know, a bit hoodwinked by big agriculture and and we don't realize what it's doing and sort of exposing them and saying, look, this is, this is true. And people kind of, after a point, they go, is this all true? Like the betrayal, you know? <laughs> you kind of have to go, yes, yes, it is. Yes, it's true. But let's not think about that. Let's think about how you're going to get better. Right. And then getting them to to look at how they're eating and and to start incorporating just much more fruits and vegetables. And and that's in a way it's very easy and it's also I guess dangerous because people can just like, well, I had like seven apples today. Meanwhile, you had seven red delicious apples that weren't organic and they're like on the top of the dirty dozen list. So, you know, and you're you didn't get any other fruits or vegetables. So I just talk about I try to make it easy, like colors, the more colors, the more vitamins, mm-hmm. you know, and Dr. Furman coined the term G-bombs. Uh-huh. And that's really easy for people to remember. Leafy greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berry seeds. And then I, I turn them on to websites like um like one green planet, man, they'll send you recipes all day long. I have a, I have a catalog of awesome vegan recipes. Unfortunately, I'm the cook in the family and my kids and their mother, they're not vegan. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the time to like, even though they're quick recipes, I don't have the time to make something special for myself. So I'll, you know, I'm like kitchen sink salad, like four nights a week, you know, and I'll throw walnuts and I'll throw beans in there and I'll throw this on nutritional yeast. Like I don't eat anything interesting but i explained to everyone else like look there's all these wonderful recipes out here you can veganize any recipe you don't have to food doesn't have to healthy food doesn't have to taste like crap it's not 1985 anymore (laughs) once they hear that that sort of soothes them i can have i can have chocolate you can have chocolate let's talk about what kind of chocolate you're gonna have you know Mm -hmm. i can have ice cream well let's talk about what kind of ice cream you're gonna have what if we just freeze a bag of of chopped bananas and then the next day we put it in your Vitamix with some cocoa powder and some vanilla and this and that. Like, is it Briars? No. But it's also not going to have, you know, the effects of dairy and all this other stuff. It's sort of like just, it's really a weaning process, I guess. Because there is a palate change, right? Sure. I'm sure you experienced that. Sure. And trying to explain to people like, you know, just let's get along to a certain point and then there'll be like a, a click. And your body will kind of go, oh, oh, we eat like this now. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, if I try something, a, a dessert or something that my kids have, it's like, oh, bro, <laughs> oh, I can't touch that. It's like a birthday cake that somebody has to, it buys at ShopRite, you know. I'll take a bite and I'm like, <laughs> how can you eat that? Right. And when my kids experience that, I'm like, yes. Right. I, by the way, I scored big yesterday. There was a sale on really overripe bananas at my local food co-op. So, so I bring these things home, and they're like like dying on the dining room table. So I get out the, um, you know, the, the the tray and freeze them. And this morning, two of them in the blender with a little cashew milk and uh, what else I put in there? Cher- cherries, uh, green green tea, flaxseed, and that was like my breakfast. I think that's my. I call it my morning jam. I have I have a, a smoothie every morning, and I think it's probably the easiest first step for anyone. Instead of having eggs and sausages, instead of having super sugar crisp, instead of having 
you know, uh, that muffin or whatever, have a smoothie and get the leafy greens in really easily. Get the, get the avocado and, and, you know, the, the medium chain triglycerides in there really, and the, you know, all the, the good fats in there, get a ton of good stuff in there, put a straw in it. So you don't gulp it all down. It's just as filling. It's like easy, you know, easy peasy. Let's find effective, easy things that we can incorporate because nobody's got time. Right. So how do you deal with, um, when you're, and maybe you don't, but you know, in my experience, I tell my clients things, I show them some of Dr. Greger's videos, I share studies with them, and then they come back and they, and they heard something, on, they read something on Facebook or they heard something and they're, all their resolve is gone and they're just back to doubt. Like I, I'll give you an example. I saw this two days ago. There was an article in the New York Times about the people on The Biggest Loser, that TV show where they lose a lot of weight. And they're gaining it back. And the article, a terrible, terrible article, basically said that it's because these people have a faulty metabolism and there's nothing they can do about it. And even on, you know, Dr. McDougall, um, plant-based doctor, start solution, even people who follow him are like read, read, and they've been like, he's totally debunked this idea. And, and they've been following him for years, but they read this one study and they're on the discussion board saying, oh, no, this doesn't work. Like, how do you deal with um, the layers of, of doubt and undermining that are the messages that the media and the culture gives that are in opposition <clears throat> to the common sense that we teach? Um, I guess I fall back on my actor training of sort of understanding what's making someone tick. Very rarely is usually what's being expressed on the outermost level is a symptom of something else going on. And you know, my my wife's a psychotherapist, her father's a psychiatrist, so just having it around. And I've always been interested in psychology, so I, usually it's like a, a bell, like okay, what else? What's really going on? Well, why did this one study have so much effect? And I try and unpack it with them. Now I'm not. A doctor, I don't diagnose, treat, cure anything. I'm not a psychotherapist. I don't delve into someone's painful childhood. But I I do believe that, you know, from a strengths-based point of view, people have all the answers inside. And that a coach, when you think about like your football coach or your lacrosse coach or, or your chess coach, they're helping to pull the best stuff out of you. And that's sort of what I try and do. I try and, and you know, do a little... A little emotional Jeet Kune Do and try and figure out what's going on. Get them to kind of show their hand and then, you know, get a hold of it and you, go, you ask them about it. And consciousness is a huge, huge tool. It's why meditation is so powerful. Once we're conscious of something, like it's very difficult to be harmful to yourself consciously. Hmm. Usually it's on an unconscious level. So if you can make something conscious for someone and get them to look at it and examine it, it's much easier to kind of debunk things. But I guess to answer your question in a very roundabout way, when something has something so insignificant has such a significant impact on someone's doubt, that for me is a, is a red flag. Like, okay, what's emotionally going on underneath? Let's let's start to figure out what the fears are, and and because it's all about fear, right? Fear and anger. Anger is usually even a false emotion covering something else, fear or loss or pain. Mm. Just kind of getting down there and just asking questions, not trying to solve someone's deeper pains, not trying to be a, a, a licensed 
social worker or licensed therapist, but just asking someone like, you know, what's that bringing up? What, what, what do you, what does that make you feel? Like, are you worried? What do you, what does that worry about? And then saying, you know, have you, have you seen positive changes by what we've done so far? Well, yeah, I feel so much better. I have so much more energy. Okay. So without going into a, a deep study, deep talk about how statistics can be manipulated and studies, you know, are, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. <laughs> you kind of want to, you know, just guide them. I think that's what a good coach does. That is such a profound answer. And as I'm hearing it, I realized like I knew that and I sort of didn't know it like that, that the part of me that does research and writes books wants to argue with them or show them more proof. Yeah. And the coach in me that totally gets what you're saying. And that's like the most obvious thing in the world was dormant in, in that, like I could do that with someone's business or relationship or some other domain, but I know so damn much about nutrition that, you know, the, the, uh, the smart ego part of me just wants to jump in and, and, and solve that. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that the, the training I got, to teach acting, um, a woman who was my teacher when I was 16, I call her my godmother, she was a, a professor at Carnegie Mellon for 20 years. And when I taught next to her and watched her, it was so subtle, like unless you really understood acting, you wouldn't see it, but she never gave the kids more than they could handle. You know, I would, she'd give this kid notes and he'd go to sit down, i think, oh, but what about this, this, this and this? Well, if she had told him this, 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 and this, or argued with him about the stuff he did wrong, she would have just fried his brain, put him into a, a, an argument. Instead, she gave him exactly as much volume as he could handle huh. of all the right good stuff and sent him off, and she'll work with him again, and she'll do it again. And her students learn, her students are great. And so I have to remind myself, like, got to be of service got to give them as much as they can hear. It's not about your ego. And that's tough. It's really tough to not have it. Just say like, you're wrong. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. Mm. That, that is, that is really cool. So what if, um, you've gone through coach training, right? So, um, how has that affected the way you work with people? Well, in America, you don't actually legally have to be certified to be a coach. Like any, any knucklehead can hang up a shingle. Right. And, many, and many do. Really, pardon? And many do. And many do. And many do. And just like I said about, you know, the Tai Chi and Qigong teachers, like certification is not always what it means to me. But I, I, I really felt comfortable that Glenn and Sharon really knew what they were doing. And, and Glenn. And that's Glenn, Glenn and Sharon Livingston of the International yes. uh, Coach yeah. Certification Academy. I'll, exactly. I'll, I'll put a link to them. Both, both uh, PhD psychologists. They, you know, Glenn had a, a practice right near me in Syosset for thirty years before they moved to Vermont, and really understood it at a very, very granular level, and um, were able to not just talk about like, well, here's how you get clients, and here's how you market to people, but also explain like, you know, here's here's some tools that you're going to want to help people with. And then actually having us work. And it was very much like um, effective models I'd seen in sports or martial arts. Like here's the technique, watch the technique being used, 
have the technique be used on you and then work the technique with someone else and mm. really explore it on all modalities. Mm. So once I did that, I felt, I felt comfortable that I wouldn't, you know, screw anyone up at the, at the least. Sure. sure. So how, if people want to find out more and uh, maybe work with you, how, what, what's the best way to do that? Uh, my website is cancertreatmentrecovery.com. Or they can uh, call me directly, um, 646-229-7618. My, my business is Solistic Health Solutions. So that's, you know, when people see cancer treatment recovery, they might think, oh, but I don't have cancer. But I work with, you know, like I said, people of um, chronic disease and other, other kind of stuff. I can, mm. I can coach people on a lot of stuff health-based. Gotcha. So it's almost like you're, you're, you're going to uh, help people recover from not having had cancer. So if it's even harder. Yeah. You know, I, I really, in the long, long term, I would like to do that. I don't think there's more than a whiff of prevention in America. Mm -hmm. Right. And well, I get really, you know, I see people donating to, uh, Susan Komen or wearing pink socks. My son has this football. He used to wear pink socks in October, and and it's all this really wonderful goodwill. But I feel like it's a it's a huge misappropriation of energy and money. Mm. And I don't I don't want to get conspiratorial, but it seems like a really good way to hoodwink everybody. <laughs> right. Well, my my friend and and mentor, Dr. Pam Popper, says that she would she would burn hundred dollar bills on her lawn before donating it, donating it to uh, the race for the cure. Yeah. All right, so you've got your website. I'll put I'll put that and the phone number up um, Thank you. there. Um, what's next for you? Well, um, you know, I haven't made this like big full assault on things because I have two young kids, and my gut keeps telling me like, you can't go uh, on the road thirty weeks a year. You've got two kids to raise. So I'm kind of taking it slow, and I want to get this book written. I'd like to have it published. Um, I'd like to have a manuscript done by the fall. We'll see if that happens. I'd like to publish my book. And um, if all goes well, I'd like to be sitting next to Ellen, you know, plugging my book. And, and just it, it, if, if, it's, if it's okay with, with the universe, I would not mind being the, the international or the American face of Qigong and plant-based diet. I would love to demystify and take the fear and strangeness out of it and, and sort of help people like yourself to alter the perception of, of a healthy lifestyle for America. Like, I would like to help my fellow Americans, I guess. Mm, that's beautiful. So one more question for folks who maybe don't want to coach right now, but they have been as affected as I have by your Qigong stories. What's the best way to start? You know, if they don't live next to um, a master. Uh, so Clear's Tai Chi, and, and I get no kickback from these guys. I just bought a DVD off them. Um, Sifu Richard Clear is, is a very, very high-level player. Very high-level. Spell, really spell his player. last name? Clear, like C-L-E-A-R. Okay. Clear's Tai Chi, I think, is his website. And this guy's got dozens of DVDs, and he does workshops, and uh, and and... For fifty dollars, you can you can basically get a monthly subscription, cancel at any time, and you can have access to all these videos. The catch is you're gonna have to find someone to train with, but you don't have to go to a gym, you know, three nights a week. You don't have to pay two hundred bucks a month. 
and you can find specific DVDs. Like right now, um, I just bought this specific um, Iron Bell or, or Golden Bell internal uh, iron. Like, not to go into like really in depth martial arts, but you know, there's guys who you can whack them with like a board, or they can they can punch bricks, and that's external. And if they don't do that again and again, after about three months, they're going to get all this arthritis and they're going to get all messed up. But if you learn to do it internally, you know, like the, think of like the martial arts films we watched as a kid, you know, and the guy's like, you know, 95 years old and he's like, can punch through walls. Like that stuff's real. That stuff is real. Mm. And it just requires some diligent practice by somebody who really knows what they're doing. And this guy, I think... This guy, I think, is a real window to a dying group of arts that human beings should not lose. Mm. Yeah, that's it's it's amazing when we, you know, when we when we look beyond the statistics and the bell curves to like what is what are the limits of human possibility? And you're one example of that. And you and you come to us wrapped in a Western package that we can recognize. But you're you're pointing to something far bigger and more universal like we yeah. we have this we have the same energy in us that the sun does and the stars and the planets and you know and damn how we squander it right like miracles are only miracles because we're not used to all our capacity i think i, I without yeah i i you know like in the bible jesus says like you'll do this and more uh-huh. And I think that walking on water and, and, and healing the sick and even maybe even producing food out of rocks might be within our abilities if we really, really, really were to connect with the way we were designed. I don't know, but it, it sort of feels that way. Mm. Well, and, you know, whether, whether we can or not, we do know that we have, the, we have access to tremendous examples of, of healing right here yeah. right now one, one more question about so if someone wants to do the qigong and they get a dvd or they find somebody locally to start practicing with you said you can feel it when you're doing it right what, can you give people a quick sense of what that would feel like so they know they're on the right or the wrong track yeah so if you're if you're standing in in wuchi like proper wuchi stance and you know you're bent in the right place you're aligned in the right place and you bring your hands together you can feel a buzzing or a vibrating or almost like a pressure, like you're holding a ball or some warmth. It can, it can manifest in different ways. So I'm going to, so this is sort of like standing like this, hips tucked a little bit and just sort of standing as if I was holding a beach ball. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're, it's all about alignment. It's a huge amount about alignment. So your weight is directly over your, your feet, the middle of your feet, your yang chuan. That's a very important point. And, it's not so much that you're, you're tucking the hips under as much as you're opening the hips out and you drop down. So your, your knees never go past your toes, but the, the, the thighs are bent and the thighs will start to burn after 15, 20 minutes because you're rooting. How about 15, and, 15 20 seconds right now? Right. And think of your Alexander, like the head, the head is hanging from a, a bungee cord. Okay. So the idea is the heaven energy is taking you this way and the rooting energy is taking you to the earth. And there's this slight bend at the hips so that all three, the lower dantian, the middle dantian, and the upper dantian are aligned, and you're breathing in your diaphragm. And if you, you know, imagine you're holding a ball, you can, you can feel it. You can kind of feel it. And there's different, 
you know, brushing and slapping techniques and, and, and sung, you want to get sung, relaxation. And Richard Clear explains all this, I think, really, really, really well. But it's not, not that hard to do. Uh-huh. Cool. So I it's just, not some yeah. esoteric thing that people are like, wow, that's, you know, that's crazy martial arts stuff. I can't, I'm not spending 20 years. Like, no, give me a month. Give me a month and you'll be feeling it for real. Mm. Fantastic. Well, Jamie Gannon, this has been such a delight to talk to you. It's been great to speak to you. To it's not often that I, I get to hang out with like-minded people. It's really a pleasure. I know. Well, we we need this before we then go you know go back out into the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, and and you you have motivated me to to really look at qigong. Uh, I have, it's a huge, it's, it's a game changer. It really is. All right. Well, I'm I'm going to go for it, and I hope that folks who are listening will uh, will keep an open mind. So the one the one thing. Um, for the last 10 minutes, I've been wondering about whether to come back to the vaccine issue because I did I did say I'd stick a pin in it. And I'm really yeah. I'm really nervous about it, not because I'm afraid of like people hearing my views, but I think it might distract people from from the message. And I'm wondering maybe we can uh, we, we can uh, come back and talk about that some other time. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. My kids are all vaccinated. I'll say that. And okay. vaccines aren't made the way they were when we were kids. But there's. It's not such a clear-cut issue as safe or not safe. There's a lot of things that people need to see. That's that's really what I want to cover. You know, I, I think people can make decisions for themselves given information, but what I'm seeing is the minute you even say the V word, someone's going to come up and uh, and just accuse you of of being you know anti-science and and uh, yeah. you know in favor of, of child genocide. So, you know, to, <laughs> right, right, right. To, to hear that it's not entirely clear cut, which everyone in the scientific community knows, like we're talking about about um, risk benefit ratios. So, exactly. So, uh, so maybe maybe we'll 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 leave it right there for now. OK. And uh, so uh, Jamie Gannon of CancerTreatmentRecovery.com. Such a pleasure and an inspiration to hear your story and to, to, le- to learn from you. I would love to speak with you again. Awesome. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. You should definitely check out the show notes at plantyourself.com slash 155 for links. I've got videos of Master Zhao, a relevant TED Talk, and links to a couple of research papers that Jamie sent to me. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 154 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you listen to this podcast, but you don't get my weekly email newsletter, please go over to plantyourself.com and sign up. I include links to articles I write, my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, plus my grammar is way better in writing. Thanks this week to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, and Tina Scharf for your generous support of this podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media. You can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing donation to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Just go to the right sidebar there. Makes a big difference. Even a couple of extra pledges a month makes a huge difference to my self-esteem, honestly, and to the feeling like I'm doing work that's valued in the world and definitely allows me to upgrade equipment and to spend more time doing the podcast. 
Again, a reminder that I've launched an extra affordable health coaching program, and I'm honestly still working out the bugs. So now's a great time to get in on the ground floor and get early bird pricing. Email me if you're interested, and that's hj at plantyourself.com. Next week on the show, I feature Glenn Merzer, who is my fellow plant-based co-author. We're a a pretty small club. Uh, He joins me to talk about his own plant-based journey, including a stint as a stand-up comic in San Francisco. Uh, He talks about his various writing partners, including Pam Popper, Del Shroff, Chef AJ, Howard Lyman, uh, with whom he wrote Mad Cowboy and No More Bull. You may remember Howard Lyman was the guy who was on Oprah describing the uh, disgusting practices of the cattle industry, Oprah then said, I'm never going to eat another hamburger. And the two of them got sued by the Cattlemen's Board, and it was a big deal. And also his latest collaboration with Benji Kurtz, who wrote a book called The Plant Advantage. It has a picture of himself standing in a pair of jeans that look way too big for him. And the exciting thing about my interview with Glenn is that he's just come out with a book of his own, which happens to be a novel about a vegan congressman who runs for president. And as someone who has not yet written my own book in this space, it was very inspiring to, uh, to see a fellow co-author go out on his own and, uh, and do his own thing. So, yay us. In garden news, last weekend I was digging out some old blackberry canes and somehow I managed to, to destroy a three-foot length of underground drain piping, that uh, accordionated stuff. I heard this weird hollow sound against my shovel head and honest to God, my first thought was buried treasure. So naturally I doubled my efforts until I saw what I was doing. So a trip to Lowe's and $22 later, the pipe was working again. And honestly, there's no real moral to the story except maybe don't wear a bandana while you dig in the ground, especially if you're prone to fantasy. That's it for this week. And as always, be well, my friends.